We continue this week with our sermon series focused on the book Mosaic, When God Uses All the Pieces. This is week two, and this week we'll be focusing on the topic of anxiety, and this relates to chapter one. It's titled, When God Uses Our Restlessness, and for our author, Shane Stanford, restlessness and anxiety are synonyms, so, but I prefer the word anxiety, so just replace restless with anxiety. I'm going to read the scripture in the middle of the sermon, so let us pray. Gracious and loving God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that all would be pleasing and acceptable in your presence, O God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. I want to begin by reading for you a brief definition that Sane Stanford gives to us for anxiety. So he writes, restlessness is more than a state of mind or extended period. It is our disconnect between our potential and our reality. Anxiety then falls in, but it's the delta between those two, between our real reality experienced right now and a potential, a reality that has yet to exist, but we imagine in our minds to exist. And today, I'm going to be talking about how our faith can become a real resource to help us when we're struggling in that middle space between those two realities, and anxiety seems so overwhelming for us. Stanford goes on to explain that there are three general situations in which our anxiety levels as human beings can become particularly high. The first is that we're on a path in life, but we don't know exactly the destination of where we're going. So think about college and not knowing what major you want to pursue and what job, by extension, you'll have after school completes. Another example is that we know that we need to take a journey, but we don't know how to start it. This might be you've just lost your job, you know that you need a job, but don't know where to find one. And last but not least, you can see a clearly defined future, but the road to that future is so long, arduous, and seemingly without meaning that you don't know if you have the endurance to pursue it. Think dating and marriage. See, that was, that was a joke. I, you weren't expecting that joke there, were you? But I got you. <laughs> you know, anxiety when it gets especially to high levels, can really lead us and motivate us to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. Stanford gives the example in the beginning of chapter one of him and his wife uh, being cooped up inside for two days because an inch of snow had fallen in Durham, North Carolina. Now, I used to live there, and I can tell you this is true. If an inch of snow falls on the ground there, the whole town shuts down for like two or three days. They don't know what to do. Everybody's slipping on the roads. It's, it's really quite terrible. So, so he's being right. They were cooped up inside for two days, and they were going at each other's throats. They said that just, as he writes, just being in that confined small apartment for that long of a period of time had their anxiety levels going through the roof. I'm sure all of us in our families and friend groups have been there. You've been around somebody a little bit too long for comfort. You still love them, but man, you could do without their presence uh, if everything were, if you had your druthers. But anxiety can also lead us to do other more terrible things than just react a bit angrily toward those we love. Stanford explains that none of us wake up in the morning and think, today I'm going to ruin my life. 
and then promptly go out and commit a heinous act like murder. No, that's a bit exaggerated and doesn't really happen. Instead, often anxiety is building in our lives due to several usually unresolved matters, and then it gets to a boiling point and we do something that we later regret. This might mean that we speak dishonestly, that we allow greed to take hold of our lives when it wasn't uh, a real issue for us earlier. We allow addictions to become uh, an unhealthy way that we cope with stress. Or in a, terms of a relationship, perhaps turning to cheating or just losing total interest in the relationship. And because the anxiety is so overwhelming that both persons in the relationship just can't really seem to coexist anymore together. This is a short list of the way that anxiety can become the precursor to sin in our lives. And then it, anxiety becomes this kind of wedge that slowly separates us from a close walk with God and staying in healthy community with others. I want to share a story with all of you of how a couple in our church really depended on God throughout a very anxious time. This story is about Jim and Joe Helmick. I have permission to share this story with all of you. Over the course of the last year, Jim and Joe both were struggling with their own respective serious health problems. Jim was suffering from a chronic swallowing issue that was growing worse and worse by the day. This had two impacts on his health. First, his uh, ability to speak loudly was progressively decreasing because of the impact the swallowing issue had on his vocal cords. And the second, he was no longer able to eat solid food. And his doctor told him at one point that he felt like Jim would never be able to eat again and thus would have to have what's called a peg tube inserted so that he could uh, be fed through the tube. Joe suffered from a sudden uh, internal blockage that caused her to be hospitalized out of the blue. Then she went through a long recovery over many months and it was really a trying time for her of having to be in a bed day after day waiting for her strength to return. Now, many would expect that Jim and Joe would get very anxious and might start lashing out at each other, become very unhappy, but that's not what happened. I remember a conversation I had with Jim in the middle of his illness where I was visiting Wesley Willows one day and I said, Jim, you just seem so remarkably calm throughout your illness. What's your secret? He said, Scott, the key is to be able to give your problems to God in prayer. He said, that's what I'm doing, and Joe is doing, and it's helping us get through this tough time in our lives. Jim shared with me on the phone yesterday that others at Wesley Willows throughout this past year started to notice how calmly they were coping with their respective illnesses. People would say, my goodness, why aren't you guys more upset about what you're going through? But Jim told me on the phone, he said, Scott, it isn't a facade. We really are very peaceful as we've gone through this tough chapter in our lives. Friends, I'm happy to share with all of you that Jim and Joe are in good health today. Jim has found healing from his swallowing issue and is able to eat again. And Joe's internal blockage issue has been cleared up and she is fine and in good health. So we celebrate that with them. And I also want to stress that it's in this story... It's not that Jim and Joe lacked emotion as they went through these very tough times in their lives this past year. Rather, it was how they dealt with their emotions. They still felt the stress and anxiety, the grief, the concern about, is this the end? All of them felt that. But they were able to use their faith as a real resource 
to help them cope with the anxiety that otherwise may have become a kind of albatross around their necks. And it had an impact. Others noticed it as well, and they, by extension, then were a blessing to those around them. They were inspiring. So let us look to them as a kind of role model, as we are wondering how we can all, in our own lives, handle anxiety better. Well, the ultimate role model for us is Jesus Christ in terms of how to struggle, how to deal with anxiety effectively in our everyday lives. And with that, I want to offer our scripture reading. So be thinking about this topic of anxiety as you hear it. This comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Hear now God's living word. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. My following reflections on this scripture passage are based on Rene Girard's book, When Satan Fell from Heaven Like Lightning. It's an excellent read. I recommend it. Are you carrying this day a heavy burden? Are you feeling like the anxiety around you from others and maybe even yourself is stifling? If so, then look to Jesus as the person to imitate. Learn from him as he says to us all these thousands of years later. He is the shining example of how God is really there in our lives to help us bear the burdens of our anxiety. If we will but make faith be the center of our person and really depend on God through the ups and downs of life. How does Jesus do this? Well, he does it in a number of ways. I think the most important way he does it is prayer. It's a pillar in his life. We see repeatedly throughout the Gospels that Jesus retreats into the wilderness to pray. And he retreats from the anxious community around him so that I think he can recenter himself. He can remember who he is, and he can be rejuvenated by the Holy Spirit. If ever you've prayed quietly before and experienced that kind of sacred moment when the Holy Spirit comes over you, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't always happen, but when we really are in that moment and centering ourselves in quiet prayer by ourselves, that moment of solitude can rejuvenate us and help us to watch our behaviors and remember that we are a beautiful child of God called to live out our faith each day. Jesus also prays when he's in community with people. He does this, I infer, to remind people that God is with them, to help direct the anxieties of the community up to God, not out at each other. And just uh, to model for the people how prayer is that important part of his life. We also see that Jesus quotes scripture when he's in very anxious times. He does that when he's in the desert and Satan is tempting him. And Satan's twisting scripture, but Jesus takes other scripture and refutes Satan. Memorizing scripture can be a powerful way of coping with anxiety. Then we find it in small mannerisms that Jesus does. Jesus never really lashes out at people. He often, from what we're able to infer from reading the text, he speaks very calmly to people. He's very collected. Even when people are trying to poke and prod him and get him to fight back, he won't do it. I want to give you a couple examples. 
So do you remember the time Jesus has all these sick persons who are always waiting for him in each town that he goes to? And then after he finishes healing the people at that one town, he tries to sneak away sometimes on a boat or leaving discreetly. But then even the people, they don't have cell phones, but somehow at the next town, they're all waiting for him right when he gets there for more healings. It gets so desperate at certain times that people are lowered through the ceiling to him because people want their loved ones to be healed. Can you feel the tension in those moments of Scripture? Another example is that Jesus' disciples, they were vying for who would be the greatest among them. They would say, I'm going to sit at Jesus' right hand. No, I will, and you won't. Jesus has to calmly work through the anxiety of his inner circle and tell them that the kingdom of God is not a place where you usurp another person from their post. You're here to serve one another and through serving to grow in your faith. And I think one of the most memorable examples is Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth and preaching there at the temple. And after reading from Isaiah, Jesus essentially tells the people in Nazareth that they really are lacking faith. And God has come to them to show them the way to a more faithful life, and they're missing it. Well, they don't take too kindly to this young whippersnapper who thinks he's all high and mighty as a prophet of God coming to tell them they need to grow in their faith. So they promptly want to take him and throw him off a cliff. Well, tell me, if you were about to be thrown off a cliff, would you be a little anxious? Does Jesus respond with violence when this happens? Does he lash out at them? No. He walks calmly through their midst, goes on his way. Probably, uh, in an amazing way, this presence may have opened the way for him to pass through their midst, them just sensing the peacefulness within him. Of course, the most powerful example of when Jesus should have become very agitated was when was the Jews relentlessly pursuing him. The, the religious elites of his time, we're speaking about a specific group of people in history, not the Jews in general, but these specific Jews in time hunting him down, trying to kill him. Jesus could have responded with military force to that. He, after all, commands legions of angels and could call them down to kill the people who are pursuing him in that way. But does he do that? No. People thought that the Messiah would be this militant kind of figure who would come in there wielding a sword and kill off all of the oppressors who were holding back Israel from becoming free from Roman occupation. But Jesus blows all of these boundaries apart because he's so peaceful. Faith, hope, and love are the marks of his ministry, not blood, death, and war. And that was a very intentional choice on Jesus' part. Jesus chooses to pursue a path of peace, and that permeates all areas of his ministry. Being a non-anxious presence in the midst of very anxious persons can be a very powerful thing, and it can bring healing to the brokenness of our world, just like Jesus did those many thousands of years ago. I want to tell you a story. When I was a hospital chaplain at Duke Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, I met a man once who had suffered from a tragic car accident, and he was put into a vegetative state, regrettably, on the other side of this accident. He, he was able, uh, he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he could think uh, very clearly. He could speak a little bit, uh, nod his head and wink his eyes, etc., to indicate what he wanted. But, and I don't in any way blame him for this. If I were in the bed and that had happened to me, God forbid, I think I would have uh, reacted in the same way. 
he became very bitter in time. And he was confined to this bed at, at Duke's ICU for an entire year. He couldn't leave. And because of the extensive medical needs he had, he couldn't leave ICU and go to another facility or go to his house to have in-home health care. Well, his negativity began to permeate throughout the medical staff. Medical staff would dread going to work in his room because he would speak to them harshly. He, they could see it even in his eyes, the contempt he had for them and the whole place and where he was. I think any of us in his shoes would have likely reacted in a very similar way after having been in that bed for an entire year. Well, the medical staff could tell that it was becoming a, a cycle of this kind of contempt for one another. The medical staff didn't like him, he didn't like them, and it was getting really bad. So the medical staff, they reached out to the chaplain's department and the social workers, and a team of us, this was not just me, this was a group of us, of social workers and chaplains, worked together to build a relationship with this man and his family and the medical staff. And it wasn't that we had any one prayer, any one conversation that changed everything. I think it was more that our community of people who came in there really did so with a very intentional focus on bringing a non-anxious presence into a very anxious situation. Anxiety can be infectious, and it can spread quickly. All of us, I'm sure, have seen it in our own families and lives. But I believe, and we see this in our scripture today, that a non-anxious presence can be even more infectious. And when we are very intentional about watching how we deal with emotion, others notice it, and it starts to impact their behavior as well. Again, going back to Jim and Joe, it's not that we stop feeling emotion. Emotion is a very natural, healthy part of our lives. It's how we deal with it. And using our faith as a really key resource to give those anxious burdens to God and allow God to give us this sense of amazing peace that permeates throughout our lives and others start to notice it and be blessed. At the end of our scripture passage in verse 30, Jesus says to his disciples and us all these years later, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke here is a scriptural metaphor, as Shane Stanford points out in our reading, referring to oxen. The yoke was a wooden or an iron device that would rest around the oxen's neck and it would turn the oxen's head as the rider of the cart or wagon directed the oxen's movement. If the oxen did not have this yoke on its neck, the oxen would become anxious. It wouldn't know where to go and it would become unruly. So the oxen was very comfortable. It gave it guidance to have the yoke on its neck. Friends, our faith is like that yoke. When we trust God, when we depend on God in our faith completely, through prayer, through scripture, through being in community with other Christians, we start to have the Holy Spirit place this kind of yoke on our neck that guides the direction of our lives. We as clergy, I don't have it on now because I don't wear uh, the, all the vestments that I wear at 8 and 9.30, but we have a stole on. I'm sure you've seen it. And the stole is a symbol of a yoke relating to this very scripture passage. We as clergy wear it to indicate to ourselves and to our faith community that we are being guided by God who holds the reins of our lives and is directing our actions and our movements because our hearts are open to it and we've dedicated our lives to following God. By extension then, the idea is that your faith leaders using this symbol shows that we are trying to guide all of you because God is guiding us, and then the church 
it is also being guided by the yoke that is steering its directions and its actions in this world. I think what's so powerful about this scriptural metaphor, going back to the beginning of Shane Stanford's chapter when he defines anxiety, is that it frees us from worrying about the potential reality. Now we can just focus on the here and now. Friends, God has such an amazing vision in store for each one of your lives and mine. And God is always wanting, if we'll just turn over a little bit of our control of our everyday lives to God, God wants to take those reins and direct our movements through the subtle voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us each and every day if we but listen hard enough for it. God wants to guide us into a more faithful path, a path that allows us to finally let go of these burdens that seem to weigh on us every day, to let the anxiety fall away because we're really giving it to God. And God is the one who then is walking beside us and helping us face the many ups and downs of life. And what's so powerful is that as we live more and more into the vision that God has for our lives, others start to see that peace of Christ that we are carrying in our hearts. And they are blessed by it. And all of a sudden, they start to wonder, what is that that you have that's helping you to lead such a peaceful, loving life? And that's where evangelism can happen. The Spirit can pass through our words and our actions to guide others to follow Jesus and discover that peace for themselves. Friends, then, let us dedicate our lives more fully to God and embrace that yoke around our necks in our everyday walks of faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.